So let's begin with Romans 4, verses 1 through 12. What then, was, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who would believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, if you'll turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, uh, you'll find this reading on page 984 if you're using the Bibles on the seats. Colossians chapter 2, we're going to be, begin reading with verse 11. You take your time. We'll pause until you all find your place there. I should have told you to keep your bulletins in the previous uh, section, but if you didn't, that's no showstopper. It'll be okay. <laughs> We're going to start with verse 11 and read through verse 15. Colossians 2, verse 11 and forward. In Him, that is in Christ, in Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by counseling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands." This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let us pray together. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, we look to you now that you would give us understanding of these passages. We recognize our uh, insufficiency in and of ourselves to understand these things. For as we, as we read the writings of the, uh, the authors of the Bible, we often encounter things, Lord, that we don't understand. We look to you, O Lord, for that understanding. But more than that, Lord, we look to you that you would change us that you would shape and mold us and make us more like your son Jesus as we study these words, that, Lord, you would do your your renovations in our hearts, O Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. Well, we come to really the third part of our series on the sacraments, and I was—I had intentions of concluding with the third part, but as I, as I wrestled with this message, I, I really have put a lot of work, especially into this message. Um, I think we might need a part four. I think we might revisit this again next week because uh, the, the, some of the things that I'm going to share will require our, our thinking caps that are thinking caps beyond, at least it sure required my thinking cap as I was working on this through the week, and hopefully we all brought those with us today. Um, So one of the central questions that I would like to answer with this sermon is really, what role uh, does baptism play in our walk with God? What what role does that play? Uh, We might even ask the question, uh, for certainly there are believers out there who have never underwent uh, baptism, uh, we're, we're commanded to be baptized. Uh, that's not an ideal situation, but aside from all of that, what is the, the benefit of the one who's been baptized versus the one who hasn't been baptized? Now, we might respond to this question, uh, especially having heard the first two messages on the sacraments. You might be thinking, okay, I know the answer to that. I know what baptism, I know what that, I know what that is. I mean, baptism's a sacrament. And sacraments are sign and seals of the covenant. And if you're sitting there thinking that, uh, you're, you're 100% correct. And if you're not sitting there thinking that, well, just act like you were, and that'll be great. Uh, that, that is 100% correct. But, but here's the thing. In the church, there are all these catchphrases that we can quickly pick up and we can kind of ape, if you will, and, 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 you know, if we were taking an exam and someone asked, well, what's, what's, you know, what's, what's this deal with the sacraments? What are the sacraments all about? And you wrote in your exam, well, they're signs and seals of the covenant of grace. If you wrote that in, you'd be correct. You'd get the answer correct. But what does that mean? Do we know what that means? That's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? And what I want to explore this morning is the real meaning of that. See, if we don't know what that means, other, face, other folks can say the same thing and they can be meaning something entirely different uh, than what the New Testament authors mean by that. And if we don't really know the meaning of it, well, we're not really going to pick up on the errors and we can certainly be in errors of our own uh, as well. So what does all this mean? Well, one of the questions that we're going to need to answer is we... As we look to see what this means, we're going to have to ask, how do the sacraments, how do they serve as signs and seals of the covenant? And um, what exactly is being signified 
and sealed. What is it? Uh, that's why I wanted to uh, return to Romans 4 and verse 11, where Paul says that Abraham received the sign. Uh, if you look at that verse, uh, you see the word sign there. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. All right, how exactly does circumcision serve Abraham in uh, this signifying and sealing uh, the righteousness that he had by faith? In other words, uh, how does the sacrament of circumcision uh, serve Abraham uh, as a sign and seal of God's promises? Now, if we look at Romans 4.11, uh, to be sure, uh, Paul is using language from the Old Testament. <clears throat> That's why we began the service by reading from Genesis 17. I want to make some connections with Genesis 17 uh, this morning that are quite remarkable. Uh, we see in Genesis 17 and verse 11, God says to Abraham, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. That's why if we say, well, what are the sacraments about? If we say, well, they're a sign of the covenant, well, Genesis uh, 17, 11 teaches us that. Romans 4, 11 teaches us that. Okay, what does that mean? Well, let's begin our inquiry by uh, briefly looking at uh, how God uses signs in general in the uh, Bible. Um, you know, as we do, we're going to discover that signs, they confirm and they strengthen and they authenticate, if you will, that which they signify. Now, what do I mean by the word signify? If you think, like, put a little blackboard up in your, in your mind and with a piece of chalk on that blackboard, uh, write the word signify, S-I-G-N, I-F-Y, I hope I spelled that correctly, signify. Um, if you do that on the blackboard and you kind of get rid of the if I, you've got the word sign, right? Uh, to signify is to really take the noun sign and make it, make it into an action word. Uh, it means to display, to uh, show forth, uh, to symbolize, uh, to represent. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, how... Uh, let, let's flesh this out a little bit. In an earlier message, I said that when God makes a covenant, He always accompanies that covenant with a sign. And uh, the, I think the, the, one of the easiest uh, examples of this would be to recall the, uh, the, the promise that God makes with Noah. You know, after He floods the entire earth, uh, destroys the entire earth, He makes a promise to Noah afterwards. What's the promise? He promises never to destroy the entire earth again by way of a flood, right? And he gives a sign that accompanies that promise. And what is it? It's that beautiful prism of light that we call rainbow. And every time we see that rainbow, we should be thinking of this promise that God has made. Make sense? It accompanies it. What is actually happening here? Well, the rainbow serves to confirm the promise that God has made. Now, let's be careful here. Let's not think that the rainbow completes the promise 
or that the rainbow adds anything to the promise. If God makes a promise, you can be rest assured that it's concrete, it's absolute, it will take place. There is no doubt, there should be no uncertainty about that whatsoever. If God says it, it's done. So why does he need a sign? Well, God doesn't need a sign. Guess who needs the sign? Yours truly. Uh, we're the ones that need a sign because we're, we're weak and we're feeble, aren't we? And that sign serves to confirm our, our weak hearts. We should never suffer any anxiety about a worldwide flood. It's not going to happen. Every time you see a rainbow, that rainbow confirms that. God will never destroy the earth by way of a worldwide flood ever again. And that sign confirms it. Uh, now the sign in no way contributes to the promise. It's important that we understand that. These signs don't contribute to the promise. They confirm the promise to our hearts. Now, as we peruse God's holy word, we will discover that he uses signs all over the place. Now, I have another example uh, from Exodus chapter 3. And you know, I quote, I'm, I'm, I use Exodus, uh, at least the first 15 chapters of Exodus so often that uh, hopefully you're getting really familiar with that. If you're not, spend some time in your devotional reading. Read Exodus. Read at least the first 15 chapters. Uh, get familiar with those uh, chapters. Um, in, in chapter 3, well, you know, it, the Israelites have, have migrated. They've already migrated uh, some 400 years plus earlier uh, to Egypt, and at the beginning their stay was well accommodated, but as time went by, uh, the Hebrew people had fallen into really harsh slavery under the kings of, of Egypt. And things got to the point where the Israelites, they cried out to God. And in our studies of the covenant, uh, we saw that God actually promised Abraham that that would happen, didn't we? He said, your, your, your offspring is going to be more than the, more than the stars. And they're going to they're end up in a land that's not theirs, and, and uh, they're going to be treated horribly. Uh, but they will be delivered. Now, God made that promise. Well, as the Israelites are, are in the land of Egypt, which is not their land, they've been promised the land of Canaan. Uh, they're under harsh slavery. They call out to God in the midst of their hardship. And God has already got things in place. He has Moses in place. And He calls Moses. And He says to Moses, Listen, I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to demand that... Uh, he uh, let his entire slave, slave population go free. Uh, go and demand that he lets the Israelites free, that he lets my people free. Now, we can try to imagine. Imagine receiving an assignment like that. Uh, you're, you, you know, Alex, you're going to go to the most powerful man in the world, and you know, he's got, the, he's got a zillion slaves that he doesn't have to pay anything, and he can treat any way he wants, and they're building his, his cities for him. Uh, go tell him and demand of him that he let all of them go. Yeah, right. How does Moses respond? He says in verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And we can kind of appreciate that, can't we? Who, who am I? Are you kidding me? How does God respond? Verse 12. First he says, I'm going to be with you. That's helpful. I'm going to be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. 
There's a sign. It's a sign that's promising success. You're going to be successful, Moses. Don't worry about this. Don't sweat this. You're going to be successful. In fact, you're going to have all these people rounded up, and you're going to serve me right here. That's the sign for you. Now, what is that doing? Is that sign contributing to God's promise to Abraham? No way. No way. What is that sign doing? It's meeting Moses in his weakness. Right? It's strengthening him in his weakness. So we see the signs, they confirm the promises of God. They don't add anything to the promises. This is for us. God makes promises that are good. You can count on them. That's the end of it. They confirm the promises to us, but they also strengthen. They meet us in our weakness, and they serve. These signs serve to strengthen us. As Calvin used to say, God gives us signs in order to strengthen our feeble faith. If your faith is like mine, it wavers. Does your faith waver? Is it, is it, is it an even line? Or is it, is it, does it go up or does it go down? Um, sometimes people think that my faith never wavers. Well, I got news for you. Sometimes it's all over the map. That's why we've been given these things. So we see the signs confirm, they strengthen. When we turn to the New Testament, namely to the ministry of Jesus, we find another powerful role of the sign, and that is authentication. We, might, we, could, we could look at lots of places, but let's think of two in the Gospel of John. Jesus makes the claim, I am the bread of life. Okay? He authenticates that claim by doing what? He miraculously feeds 5,000 men besides women and children with only a few fish and a few loaves. Now there's the sign. There's the promise. Uh, another example in John chapter 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. How does he authenticate that? Raises Lazarus from the, from the tomb, doesn't he? That's what causes the big crowds to seek Jesus. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be studying that here in just a, a few weeks, actually. Uh, the large crowds that come up out of, uh, out of Jerusalem to meet Jesus on the Mount of Olives and the crowd that's already up on Beth in Bethany following him, uh, they heard about the sign. Lazarus has been in the tomb. His body is already beginning to decay. Jesus gives the word and he comes out in his burial cloth. Who wouldn't want to go and check that out? He makes the claim, I am the resurrection and the life. And he validates, authenticates that claim by raising Lazarus from the dead. So we see the signs, they're very powerful. They're not adding anything to the promise. You can be rest assured, if, when Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life, he is the resurrection and the life. Uh, the raising of Lazarus from the dead doesn't do anything to alter that promise or to alter that reality. It's, an, it's, it's a sign for us to meet us in our weakness. It's a sign for us to meet us uh, in our feebleness. These signs confirm, they strengthen, and they authenticate. Now, with this, let's start putting some of this together. How does circumcision serve as a sign and seal of God's covenant? Now, oftentimes we think of circumcision, or we, have, we probably think of baptism more often than circumcision, um, we're going to see there's a close relationship between the two, but a lot of times when we think of baptism, 
We think of it as something that's all about us. We'll think about it in terms of, okay, baptism is a sign that I have surrendered my heart to the Lord Jesus. It's a sign that uh, I have faith, a yeah, public decoration that I'm, uh, I am uh, uh, surrendering my heart to His Lordship. I trust and I believe in Jesus. And uh, we think along those lines uh, with baptism. But where this line of thinking fails is in the fact that not all who are circumcised, or for that matter, who are baptized, are inwardly transformed. Let's think of Jesus' trial. You know, Pontius Pilate, he wants to wash his hands of Jesus. He wants, you know, he realizes, see, he needs to get, he needs, he needs to get out of this, and he needs to get out of this fast, and he tries to release Jesus. Uh, and uh, he, he, he offers them, listen, I mean, I'm going to let a criminal go, you know, hoping that the people will choose Jesus, let Jesus go. Uh, and, and, and how did that work out? What did the people, what did the people yell in response uh, to Jesus? They yelled, crucify him, didn't they? Crucify him, crucify him. Now, I would submit to you that the mass majority of those who were yelling, crucify him, were circumcised. Is there an inward transformation in their hearts? They're trying to kill the Christ. In fact, they accomplish what they're set out. Oh, absolutely not. Here they are circumcised. They've been brought into the covenant. God has brought them into the covenant. But they're not inwardly transformed. Furthermore, Abraham is commanded to circumcise all the males of his household that were eight days or older. Now, how's an infant eight days old to be expected to testify of an inward transformation that has taken place in their heart? But we all know that they can't do that. But they were included in the covenants. By, by that sacrament of circumcision, they're brought into the covenant. As Mark Ross, who, if you're not familiar with Mark Ross, he is a a pastor in the ARP. He's also an adjunct professor. He teaches a number of places. Uh, he's a great guy. He, he writes in a, in a book, The Case for Covenantal Baptism, he writes, quote, if circumcision is taken directly as a sign and seal of faith or of imputed righteousness or of an inward spiritual transformation, it fails miserably. Um, of course it does. Not all who have been circumcised any more than all who have been baptized are inwardly transformed. He goes on to say, taking any sacrament to be a sign of faith, righteousness, justification, salvation, inward spiritual transformation, or other such things leads inevitably into problems. Okay? So how are we supposed to understand it? So we're back to that again, aren't we? Well, when Paul says in Romans 4.11 that Abraham received the sign of circumcision, as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that circumcision is the sign and seal of the righteousness that Abraham had acquired by faith. Let me put it another way. Um, circumcision is the sign of the covenant of grace, which promises that all who have faith will be credited as righteous. Does that make sense? 
So Paul tells us that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteous he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So what benefit did Abraham gain from the sacrament of circumcision? The answer is circumcision confirmed to Abraham that by virtue of his faith that has been given to him in God, that he has, been, he has acquired righteousness. It served as a sign to confirm to Abraham that as he trusts God, he has been made right with God. It's a sign that serves to strengthen Abraham that as he trusts in God, that he truly has been cleansed of his sins. It's a sign that authenticates to Abraham that he has been washed by virtue of the promise. See, it's a sign not of what we do. It's not a sign of what's going on in us per se. It's a sign of what God is doing. It's a sign of what God is promising to do. See, now this makes sense. If, I'm, if, we, if we want to think about it in Old Testament categories, if I am a, a circumcised unbeliever, that doesn't change the promise at all. If I'm a circumcised believer, that doesn't change the promise at all. In the case of a believer, the circumcision serves as a sign to strengthen, confirm, and authenticate the promise of the covenant of grace, which I believe in as a believer. And I have this sign which confirms to me that God has washed me, that He's made me clean. As an unbeliever, circumcision condemns me. It condemns me. Because it's a sign of the covenant. The covenant that I am forsaking. And if we want to think about it in terms of baptism, the same thing is going on. The very same thing is going on. I like to give everybody pegs to hang things on. It makes it easier for us to remember things. And I'm throwing a lot of information out there. I want to give you two pegs. Try to remember these two words, even if you need to write them down. Circumcision and baptism both basically mean uh, what has been well said as two words, cleansing and consecration. Cleansing and consecration. Hold on to those two words. Cleansing, I think, is easy enough to see uh, by the, the rite of circumcision, uh, by cutting the foreskins. That's, uh, that serves, that, that bloody rite served uh, as a uh, symbol, if you will, as a sign that the pollution of sin, which is propagated from generation to generation to generation, has been nullified, that it has been wiped out, it has been cleansed, if you will. And water baptism, uh, water baptism for sure is a sign of the washing of sins. In fact, um, if we, uh, uh, we, we could think of... Uh, uh, Paul's words in Acts 22.16. He tells the people in that, in that verse to rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Uh, here we see the idea of cleansing. And verses like this, we have to be very careful. It's easy to stumble across the verse like this. Uh, if we just take this verse uh, in isolation from the rest of the Bible, it says, rise and be baptized, wash away your sins. We could conclude from this verse that it's actually baptism that washes us of our sins, couldn't we? Does baptism actually wash us of our sins? 
Remember what I've been saying about the sign. Does the sign add to God's promise? Does the rainbow keep the world from being flooded? No. Does baptism wash us of our sins? The only way to be washed of your sins is by faith in Christ Jesus. Amen? So how can Paul, how, how can Paul say this? In other places, Peter comes out and says, baptism that now saves you. You've ever come across that verse? Baptism that now saves you? Does baptism save us? Does everybody who is baptized, is every single individual who is baptized going to heaven? I, I would hope we'd all say no to that. Now, there are people that teach that. There's a lot of confusion in these areas. There are people that teach that. At least upon baptism, where all the liabilities of original sin is removed, there are people that are teaching that. There are lots of people that believe that to be true. That is, that is emphatically false. We don't want to be trusting in that. When the New Testament authors use the word baptism, the sign is so closely associated with that which it signifies, sometimes the sign is used as a synonym for what it signifies. And when we understand that, then it makes sense. When the Apostle Paul says, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, he's been talking about faith in Christ for the washing of the sins. The baptism, which is a sign of what Christ does in our hearts, is being so closely associated with the work of the Holy Spirit in our, in our hearts that he uses the terms synonymously. Does that make sense? If you're not getting that right now, that's fine. It took me a long time to get that. If you can get it here in one morning, you're doing way better than I ever did. Um, that's why we have to continually go over this stuff. Um, Colossians 2.11, let's put that together and we'll, we'll, we'll wrap things up. There Paul connects circumcision and baptism. If you look with me there to Colossians 2.11, the <clears throat> verse we read just a few moments ago, he says, In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Do you see that? The writing is so, it's very dense. It's hard, to, it's hard to grasp. In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Paul is addressing believers. And he's told that they've been circumcised with a circumcision that was not their doing. This has been done without hands. By putting off the body of flesh, here we see the cleansing of circumcision, putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. <clears throat> this is the inward work of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. This is not something we do. It's something that God does. Um, it's a circumcision made without hands, a circumcision of Christ. Now, if we look at the next verse, Paul connects circumcision with baptism. He immediately goes right to baptism. He says, having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Now, this verse speaks a lot about the union we had with Jesus, which is a sermon for another day. Um, but here we see this close connection. Here, circumcision and baptism are connected. They both signify cleansing from the pollution of sin. We got that? That's the word we want to keep our minds on, cleansing. Uh, you write that down if you have to, but keep that in your mind, cleansing. Let's look at consecration really briefly and we'll be done. In Genesis 17, which we looked at earlier, God institutes the sacrament of circumcision. And he begins with these words. He says to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. Uh, and this call is also given to Abraham's offspring, this idea of walking before God and being blameless. 
This is the language of discipleship. That's what's going on here. God has called Abraham to himself. And he's calling him to discipleship. That's what's meant, that's what we mean by consecration. By consecration, we mean that God has set uh, Abraham apart for himself. Uh, let's not think of this as Abraham setting himself apart to God. Uh, Abraham has done that, but circumcision is not a sign of that. Uh, Abraham has surrendered his uh, heart to God. He was called to leave his homeland. Did he leave? Yes, he left. Abraham has done everything God has asked him to do. That's, uh, uh, but circumcision is a sign that God has called Abraham to himself. It's a sign of what God has doing. Now, um, let's uh, think of baptism now. Um, we could think of a, uh, a very popular passage in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, where just before Jesus' ascension, he tells his church, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This sounds strikingly familiar, or similar, if you will, to Genesis 17, doesn't it? What is baptism doing? It's cleansing, but it's also consecrating. Setting people apart for God. It's called a discipleship. It's called a discipleship. So back to my original question, what role does baptism play in our walk with God? Well, it serves as a sign that confirms, strengthens, and authenticates us in our weakness of the promises of the covenant. What are those promises? That by our faith and trust in Jesus, we're going to be cleansed and set apart for God. Does that make sense? No. If we're a believer, it, it, it serves to uh, strengthen us, serves to authenticate, serves to confirm. What if we've been baptized and we're, our profession is false? It's still the same. See, the, the sacrament functions just like the Word of God does. <clears throat> If I'm a believer, I have faith in the promises. But if I'm not a believer and I read the Word of God, and in, as I read the Word of God, I read about the promises, as I do this as an unbeliever, I'm not altering these promises in any way. Those promises still stand. They just serve to condemn me. Same thing with, with the sacraments. What are the sacraments? They're visible representations of the promises. They serve to confirm, strengthen, and authenticate us of the cleansing and the consecration that God is doing. Does that make sense? In the covenant of grace. Okay. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would be pleased, Lord, to fasten these truths to our hearts so deeply that, that we really could look to our baptism and we really could find this confirmation, this, this wonderful, wonderful strengthening and authentication of the cleansing that we have in Christ Jesus and of the fact that we've been set apart, that we've been made holy for 
uh, for your use that uh, our baptism would call us to discipleship. Oh, Lord, we pray for the work of the Holy Spirit, that you would work, that we would truly see the power of the, of the signs that you've given us, that you would use them to work uh, mightily in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing our closing psalm. I hope it's building nothing less.